Hello and welcome to Culture, Sex, Relationships, a podcast about, well, culture, sex and relationships. And today is a really great one for this. We're going to discuss um, an ESRC project, funded project called Digital Intimacies, how gay and bisexual men use their smartphones to negotiate their cultures of intimacy. And I'm delighted to be joined by Jamie Hakim. Hello, Jamie. Hello. And Ingrid Young. Hello, Ingrid. Hello. Going to read out their bios, which is always very embarrassing for everyone. Uh, Jamie Hakim is a lecturer in media studies at King's College in London, uh, in the UK. He researches mostly queer men's digital cultures of intimacy, embodiment, and care. He is particularly interested in how these cultures can be analysed to understand the shifting dynamics of the broad historical conjunctures in which they are produced. Um, his monograph, Work That Body Male Bodies in Digital Culture, was published uh, in 2019 by Roman and Littlefield. And um, he's also a member of the Care Collective and co-authored the Care Manifesto, The Politics of Interdependence, which was published by Verso in 2020. And that's been on my bookshelf for ages, and I wish I'd read it uh, by now. Embarrassing for me. Um, Ingrid is a Chancellor's Fellow in Social Science of Health and Medicine with training in Sociology and History. She is based at the Wellcome-supported Centre for Biomedicine, Self and Society, her research examines the interface between biomedicine and public health, with particular considerations of gender, sexuality, and wider inequalities in relation to emerging biotechnologies in HIV and sexual health. Thank you so much for joining Culture Sex Relationships today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you for having us. <laughs> so, this project, am I right in thinking that actually this project was planned quite some time ago um, where you were going to explore how gay and bisexual men use their smartphones to negotiate their cultures of intimacy, but then the pandemic happened? Is that correct? That's exactly correct. So, yeah. it, it takes quite a while to put together a funding bid for mm. UKRI, ESRC. And I can't remember when we started doing it. I started doing it was probably about 2016, 2017 was when I, when I started. And then I invited Ingrid um, to be co-I and we were kind of just working out a way to address certain, um, to kind of engage with uh, existing research on this question yeah. and try and build on it in particular ways. Um, so we were interested in, a lot of the research is interested in hookup apps, for instance, particularly when it comes to gay men. And obviously that's absolutely central to what we're doing, but we were interested in other kind of functions of the phone. And um, because partially we were interested not only looking at casual sex, although that has a particular place within gay men's mm -hmm. cultures of intimacy, but we wanted to have a kind of broader understanding of gay men's intimate lives. And it's so varied and heterogeneous that we felt that by looking at the smartphone, you get more than um, the kind of casual sex, which is commonly negotiated on there. Although there's really interesting research to say other stuff happens there too. Um, and then, and then we, we were doing it, we started in July 2019. And then the pandemic happened just before we started doing the interviews and then everything shifted. I mean, we actually had a bit yeah. of a panic. We were like, oh no, what is this? Everything going to change? And not everything did change, but enough did mm. for it to be, you know, something to have to think about. Well, I think it's almost. Um, I don't. I don't know how history will um, will look at this project, but the. I think it's almost kind of. Um, it, there are some so such interesting things that it brings up, particularly around what we mean by intimacy, and how um, and how inequality is uh, such a huge part of this piece, and and normativities as well, um, and how just the coronavirus has not uh, has affected everyone, but it's not affected everyone equally, and that's. Uh, really coming through in in a lot of the interviews, I think, and a lot of the stuff that um, you'll talk about. Um, so, 
can we start by defining our terms? <laughs> so um, I think when a lot of people think about intimacy, they do kind of immediately think about um, shagging. And But you have a much broader, much more interesting, and I think more vital kind of um, uh, starting point for, for your work. Can you talk a bit about that for us? Yeah, sure. Um, so the quote that we often use when we talk about intimacy is uh, from Lauren Balance, introduction to a special issue that she edited, I think in 1999, I think a critical inquiry, um, mm -hmm. a special issue on intimacy. And there's a couple of pieces that she's written in that. And the quote that we use is connections we depend on for living. Um, and Lauren Balant, for people who don't know, is a literary theorist, a cultural theorist, a queer theorist. And um, she is writing at a moment where a kind of the, the height, the tail end of the height of kind of 1990s queer theory, which was a project that was involved in kind of challenging all forms of normativity, mostly in relation to gender and sexuality, but you could certainly extend that idea, I think, to other areas. And um, so she's arguing against a kind of idea of intimacy, uh, a more, I suppose, conservative or traditional idea of intimacy as mm. Uh, private relations that happen in the domestic sphere and it's implied that it's with a heterosexual couple who will inevitably marry and have kids and um, what she does and she does it also with um, Michael Warner one of her co-authors uh, is they expand that and they say if you look at queer culture none of that makes sense certainly not at the time this was I think a time when gay marriage was being deeply contested not least by Michael Warner actually and um and so, yeah, they look at the sorts of intimacies that queer, different sorts of queer folk um, have with each other. And they say that it isn't about marriage. It isn't even about the private sphere, actually. A lot of this is dependent on public space and public culture. And they, it's a much better definition, I think, of intimacy generally, but certainly in terms of the culture that we're looking at, which is connections we depend on for living. Um, mm. And they talk about... Uh, they list, I mean, they look at the cruising cultures uh, of in urban Manhattan and they describe that as a form of intimacy, which isn't something everybody would do. Um, mm -hmm. They talk about gal pals and fuck buddies. And they also talk about, they don't talk about technology. I think the place, uh, I think Michael Warner talks about technology a little bit later, a bit kind of negatively, but they do talk about objects, mainly in terms of fetish objects, but th that relationship is a form of intimacy. And it was becomes very clear to us that, you know, smartphones, are so crucial in um, not defining we would say but so crucial in terms of kind of our cultures of intimacy and the connections that we depend on for living um, sure. and we wanted to map some of that using that broader approach yeah I guess it's this um, the idea of us being uh, atomized individuals making individual choices with individual other people is how many might, people might view the world but then actually not only are we assemblages of other people but assemblages of ideas and philosophies and places and buildings and objects and and, and the non-human things as well and so that that kind of really comes out and i think a lot of your interviews is all about what people really are missing in this moment and what what those kinds of broad that what that sense of place kind of gives to people um and i think that's really really important it's probably not something that 
that people who are not gay or bisexual or people who are straight and, and cis, it's probably not something that people really think about a great deal because it's just assumed that, that is, these are normal and it's not, and these are not contested ideas, uh, are they? That, these, that the kind of intimacies that we, people can have in, uh, in public, so-called public spaces are not even something that straight people, cis people have to interrogate. Well, I, I think I, I agree. I think that's that's really important. But I do think that there are some non-normative heterosexuals out there, and I'm thinking about you know sex work and and burlesque. And there's all sorts of ways that that sex has been queered that's not just done by queer people. So I, mm, I, yeah. I I so I think it's important to think about that. But I think going back to to Jamie's discussions about what intimacy means and drawing on Berlant, I I think that the last 20 years of <laughs> of well the last 20 years has has made a real it's really shifted how we think about intimacy the when berlant and warner or berlant was writing in in the end of the 90s we have the beginnings of the internet right and we have now we have the smartphone so we've we've gone leaps and bounds ahead of of where Berlant and Warner were, and they, they were really interested in the idea of public spaces, and we have very much shifted into digital public spaces and what that means and what that allows for. So, some of the people that I've interviewed in previous projects talk about some of the the queer men I've interviewed talk about moving on to gaydar, moving on to the web based. Um, platforms in in contrast to to public cruising sites and and then we have another leap to the the apps and the smartphone and the other means of, of connecting that that go beyond those hookup apps so i do think that intimacy that definition of intimacy still holds but what is normative has really shifted Mm. both in terms of queerness but also in terms of connectivities in terms of, of of being with each other in the last 20 years or so so i think the the project has been really it's been really nice to be able to capture and to reflect on on those quite seismic changes yeah i think that's really interesting as well from the um from the I, I do my, my, most of my work has been with young people and at the beginning of the pandemic kind of the the focus anything that was said about young people's sexuality which was very little which we might talk about later what was we, we very much shifted from a online space isn't real we shouldn't do um intimacy on online spaces shifting almost overnight in the course of one month to this is the only place where you can do this and you shouldn't do it anywhere else and all of a sudden online spaces for sexuality and exploring our sexuality went from being you should definitely not do this to you should definitely do this for young people which is really interesting so this struggle around can we even do intimacy in digital spaces is now completely opened up by by the pandemic isn't it yeah i mean absolutely i mean what you're saying um justin it reminds me of the kind of kind of popular discourses around um, uh, technology for gay men and queer men mm-hmm. and that um, there is some uh, there is some understanding there's a kind of hegemonic understanding in culture that any form of technologically mediated intimacy is inauthentic and in fact mm-hmm. for gay men that gets twisted even further to it's addictive and destructive right mm-hmm. and that that's that's made itself kind of felt I think in different kind of popular books and 
recent work on uh, the, the kind of film about chemsex and stuff like this that somehow you know the, the the problems and the addictions that are unique to gay men somehow um um are intensified or indeed exist because of hookup apps and the internet and that just isn't a position that that we share and and for me um that it's not necessarily it's not about they are fundamentally good or they are fundamentally bad it's trying to work out what they're doing in a particular historical moment um that is the, the approach that, that we're taking and what they're doing so and i just remember just unraveling that you're talking that you also asked about the pandemic and and that's absolutely true you know there's there is a common there are, there are multiple discourses on technology in the central health se- sector um one of the common ones is that one and then suddenly during the pandemic everyone's like only use the internet only you know without paying no heed to you know a decade of of the, the internet is really bad for you apps are really bad yeah. for you and so there's so i think that, that i think that exposes some of that the kind of contradictions of that of that discourse um and, and it brings up its own problems. You know, there, you know, there are, you know, the people we've spoken to so far um, are grateful for the fact that we now have the degree of technological mediation that we have in our pockets, essentially, and um, particularly during the pandemic. But also, there, you know, it, it's not straightforward. It's um, caused problems for some of them too. That that yeah. this has been the only way that they've been able to kind of negotiate their cultures of intimacy during the pandemic when physical intimacy can be dangerous for you. So it, it, we're trying to map the kind of you know, constantly shifting terrain around these questions that don't kind of rely on the stereotypes that are so easily drawn on by our participants too, but also by um, people working in sexual health and, and in gay media. Totally. Ingrid? Um, I think Jamie had put that quite nicely. Um, I think the only thing I would add was you asked, I think at one point about at the start of this talk about doing work during the the pandemic and young people accessing, um, accessing internet spaces. And I think we did the interviews. So I would stress that the, the project is multifaceted and there is more than the interviews that were done. There's there's also a whole raft of work that, that Jamie's been doing um, in, in addition to the interviews. But we did the interviews at a point where lockdown had eased mm-hmm. and and had then restarted, actually. So during right. that point, so people had very, um, they were very reflective about their experiences of lockdown and what that meant and what change was possible. Mm. And I think people were surprised at how um, how much their digital connections meant to them or how much they didn't mean to them. And I, and I think this, you know, Jamie's point about the last 10 years of us being told that apps are bad, the internet is bad, it's, mm-hmm. it's going to, I don't know, lead you to the devil or something. Um I think people were really, they were given the space to think about their relationship with the internet and their relationship with smartphones and therefore the, and their relationships with others in a way that they'd never been before. So that's slowing down and also speeding up the, the, both the slowing down of you're not able to physically be with anyone and see anyone and meet up with anyone, but the immediacy the, of having to be in touch with people because you are they, everyone knows you're at home or you're supposed to be at home and you're supposed to be available because of, 
of all all of the pandemic related things. So I, I just think that there's some there have been some interesting tensions that we were able to pick up in the interviews in those quiet spaces mm. where we're surrounded by the noise I think of social media and me and media more broadly. Big time. Before we go into um, in some of the content of the interviews, which would uh, be great if you could talk about, I just want to kind of, um, just to, to, to clarify um, the importance of talking about gay and bisexual men's intimacies, uh, gay and queer men's intimacies, that, um, that, in, that there are particular reasons why we're talking about how these intimacies might be navigated digitally and or might not be navigated digitally and why it is that we're talking about intimacy why it's useful to talk about intimacy and intimacy in this broad way where we're also incorporating uh scenes buildings bars spaces parks you know the the how and why that is really important could you say a bit more about that before we move on because i think so far a lot of people might think well you know that was my experience too you know people who people who uh a lot of straight people might listen to some of this and think well you know I've been finding this difficult too dating during lockdown and how I've managed that but I think there are some extra uh, I guess um, difficulties or uh, struggles uh, that we need to kind of bring up here as well yeah sure um, so yeah we I mean we're, we're, we're I mean just interested uh, ourselves in gay men particularly in our research interest but in terms of um thinking about what's specific to a gay man's cultures of intimacy and I'm kind of doing the top of my head so I hope they'll do it justice um, so the, the, you're right the publicness of um, of gay men's and and I think gay men's particularly you know this is not necessarily the same for kind of queer women or not necessarily the same for trans folk and, you know and the way that the trans men that we've interviewed interact with these cultures is different. You know, we, we mm-hmm. are thinking about all this stuff intersectionally, but kind of broadly speaking, there is a publicness um, to it. And I, that isn't just public sex, although we are interested in cultures of public sex. That's also having to go to a bookshop to find a gay book, being brave enough to go to a, a gay bookshop to find out about um, your sexual health because you're not going to be taught that at school and Ingrid was absolutely right to talk about how the digital is a sort of public which you have to learn to negotiate because um, you know the, the, historically and I think Justin you definitely know more about this than I do sexual health was left to parents to tell their children um, in the private sphere I mean I think going back forever and they probably didn't do it um, that just was never going to happen with um, with gay men so there's a publicness to um, knowledge exchange to things being resourced that has a particular reflection and importance for gay men so there's that and you're right to talk about bars and buildings because historically that's where you know they weren't doing it at school perhaps they're doing it more now I'm not sure they're not doing it at school they're not doing it in these sorts of environments it's in these kind of queer counter publics is the language that um, Michael Warner I think uses so there's that there's also um, homophobia um, straight people don't have to contest with homophobia and that happens in these public spaces um, or in other public spaces but also happens at home and mm-hmm. gay people can still be rejected you know we, we've come leaps and bounds in particular ways when it comes to particularly gay men's place in society but um, 
they uh but they you know homophobia is a structuring force in gay men's lives and what and, and plays out in particular ways in relation to their cultures of sex and intimacy and there was something else i wanted to say about gay men oh yeah and something else that i think we're talking about is um is the is um the the significance of casual sex and the significance of monogamy is contested in particular ways in gay men's cultures of intimacy and so um it was interesting me and Ingrid did a focus group with um uh where this question of non-monogamous practice i mean they're not using those terms but non-monogamous practice came up and interestingly some of the younger guys were very wedded to the idea that you shouldn't be non-monogamous and the older guy in the room there was a a brief kind of exchange of conflicting ideas around that mm. um, but i think that you know the, the ways that certain ideas are contested are quite specific to gay men's cultures of intimacy that may overlap but at least take on different inflections in terms of any of your heterosexual <coughs> listeners or the people that they kind of interact with i don't mm. know yeah something that came up that i found interesting as well was the that to do with access to those spaces so um to for for instance um you were talking about um queer trans intersex people of color and that they they may already have had a pre-existing reliance on 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 using digital platforms for to establish intimacy and comradeship and allyship it's very it's as it's very important you know we are thinking about this intersectionally and i think um what is clear, not only not not just from the interviews, but from kind of doing the cultural analysis that we're doing, um, looking at cultural representations and kind of social media content, that um, when people talk about how far we've come when it comes to LGBTQ culture, what we're really talking about, I think, is white cis cisgendered white gay men or not not only but they have been the chief beneficiaries of the, the liberalization towards so-called lgbtq uh kind of politics in, mm. in the, and and that that reflects itself also in the scene right we talk about the lgbtq scene but it's very clearly dominated by by cis white gay men there there used to be um a bar explicitly for queer women in Soho that's closed there is no um anymore there is no single space where queer women for instance can go and if you talk to any kind of person of color you know the kind of racism that that experienced in these spaces both on and offline so using mm -hmm. hookup apps as well it's very much weighted towards cisgendered um white men and one of uh, so it's not research that i do but it's certainly uh, in the field that i work in um looking at queer digital engagements one of the clear things that's come out is that um the internet is a complicated space but one of the benefits it's had for queer well for for particularly queer trans intersex and people of color and the various kind of combinations of those terms is that the internet and particular platforms like tumblr up until quite recently have been quite instrumental for these groups of people to come together to communicate about their shared experience and to share kind of types of digital culture memes and kind of but also healthcare and um bits of history um and so when we talk about so yes there were there were there there are, there are i think the presentation you're referring to justin is 
there have been different positions on what the digital has done um, mm. in the pandemic. And the people we spoke to, it didn't do a huge amount, actually. Um, but there have been people that have claimed that, um, so I'm thinking about a particular article in um, the magazine Gaudem, which was written by a QTPOC writer. And they said that um, that QTPOC people were kind of, were, were, were thriving because it's a space they had been used to navigating. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. gay men haven't had to, gay men use the internet, I mean, I'm talking obviously in broad brushstrokes, but in that same way, in the same way that trans and queer folk and other sorts of queer folk have had to. So mm -hmm. there, there are, we, we are very mindful of not to paint in broad brushes mm -hmm. and to be very clear about who we're speaking about. And and it, it certainly, um, I think QTPOC, the claims are that QTPOC people haven't, are much more used to being in these spaces in terms of navigating mm -hmm. their cultures of intimacy. And that's very plausible to me. And that comes up a bit in our interviews, but broadly, the, people outside that category haven't flourished in quite the way these writers have claimed that QTPOC people have. Sure, and 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 QTPOC people, folk have um, uh, not had a good pandemic, you know, that where inequality has exacerbated um, inequality. <laughs> <laughs> more, more people have been harmed by the pandemic if they are from, if they are people of colour and if they are young and LGBT and QIA. Um, so, you know, their mental health has suffered more greatly as well as their material circumstances too, which are both connected. But I think it's just like a, I guess there's a potential for an for an interesting, to look at the different directions of travel there, aren't there, I suppose, about about online spaces and the capacities for it. But let's move on to the interviews themselves because it, it kind of um, really raises some like interesting thoughts um, so I, I think it was the was it the London School of Health and Hygiene and Tropical Medicine I always get that wrong but basically they, they did a survey which suggested that during the, the first lockdown three quarters of gay men did stop hooking up altogether um, and for some that was quite enjoyable right so mm -hmm. um, the, there was an interview quote where this was actually quite okay for a bit do you want to tell us a bit more about that um, so I can't speak too much to that to that survey, although um, I know the folk who did it. And I, I think that, to give some context, I think there was an assumption that everyone would stop having sex in the pandemic. I think we weren't supposed to be seeing each other, therefore we weren't going to be having sex with each other, which I think was never going to happen. And I think has, has um, overtones of or is reminiscent of early responses to AIDS in the 80s, right? Gay men, you should all stop having sex. And, and actually that didn't happen. And, and what happened was there were some creative responses to how to have sex in a pandemic or epidemic. But I think in terms of the, the break, so that if according to that survey that, that you're referencing, if, if about a quarter of people were having sex, but three quarters weren't, some of the people in our... Um, in our study did talk about it, it did provide a break there was a there was a, a pace or a speed at which you were meant to keep up with mm. these took up apps your friends your colleagues your peers your your fuck buddies whoever and that because of the the expectation that you know you, you you use the geospatial apps to go i am five minutes away from you be here in five minutes and and, and i think a lot of the participants that we spoke to said actually it it made me realize how 
how much I needed a break from that. Not necessarily the sex, but the this the pace, the speed, the the pressure to keep up with contacting and, and being in touch with people. I don't think people necessarily I think a lot of people missed it but appreciated mm. the, the the space. But I do think that um, one of the things that, that came up was the idea of control and what the apps um, not the apps but the phones in general how much they control you or how much you control them and that break allowed for people to reflect on whether it was the pace that they wanted to go at or, or, or whether it wasn't and one of the participants that I interviewed talked about he'd been seeing this person and decided that um I suppose the pandemic made him reflect on whether the pace he'd been going at before with, you know, increasing um, the kind of intensity of the relationship was what he wanted to do. And actually the pandemic allowed him to, to slow things down and go, okay, I don't have to be running at this pace anymore. I can, I can take things slow. And that seems, it seemed to open up possibilities for, for some of the participants. Um, not all of them, but but certainly for some of them. I guess I, I, I guess the term that I would use here might be kind of a, a more self consensual approach. The just being able to spot where some of the the pressures are, um, and being able to bring a bit more spaciousness and a bit more uh, intentionality into the in, into what's going on. Yeah, I don't I don't want to suggest that the people we interviewed weren't consenting to the pace or the, yeah, the kind of sure. activities before I, I, I think it just gave them pause for reflection on whether it was where they wanted to be or maybe their <clears throat> excuse me their priorities had changed or their their the relationship had changed because of the the shift in in how they were communicating with people for some people mm. it increased the intensity of their relations with each other but maybe in a um an a I don't want to say platonic in a non-sexual in a non-sexual mm-hmm. sort of way. Yeah. Yeah, no, I just, sorry, Justin, just to, no to add to that, one of the things that's coming out of the interviews and something that we need to keep thinking about is the, the you know, cult, cultures of intimacy in our intimate lives can make us anxious. And um, those anxieties take on particular forms when it comes to, in, in to, to gay men to queer men um, and they speak about um, you know the pressure of being on the apps the pressure of certain types of body cultures um, in certain types of spaces um, the pressure to to engage with what they see as a sort of kind of casual sex culture which they do or don't want to or they want to but it still makes sense and one of the things that we're trying to think about is trying to make trying to kind of unpack a little some of the kind of stereotypical ideas around kind of gay cultures and mm. and recognize that you know in love and sex and intimacy makes all sorts of people anxious and so mm. to pause it for some people to pause these sorts of whether it's just the anxiety of being able to connect with someone or mm-hmm. whether you're right for someone or those kind of more generic things or whether it's specific people did articulate specific things about gay culture Hmm. you know that it it gave them a moment I mean but then a lot of people didn't I mean I think it's also important you know Ingrid's right a a lot of people didn't it's important to say that Hmm. but there were definitely a handful of people who enjoyed the break from um, from those pressures and those anxieties they felt 
I'm sure a lot of our listeners will feel similarly, um, not just about sex, but just about socializing generally and being, you know, a lot of people just feel this kind of escalator um, that to be to be out and in a in a public place with someone or to be doing things with other people is always kind of uh, better or more authentic or more real than you know, better way of living your life than staying at home and playing Animal Crossing. And so that gave people a lot of permission to do that. Not that I've played that, I wouldn't know. I've been rubbish <laughs> at it. But the I think that that was certainly true for lots of people. And I've recorded a podcast with uh, Joanna Romero where um, uh, early on in the pandemic where we talked about um, Higa, uh, radical Higa. So the idea of being at home and being cosy and how this might be an opportunity to do that. You know, in the, uh, the phase where the people who were able to work from home, which is not most people, but the people who were able to work from home were making uh, sourdough bread, guilty. Um, and, you know, in, in nesting and enjoying being at home. So there's definitely, I think that's something broadly as well the the ability to step off an escalator is is often pretty beneficial for us um but this was certainly not the case for for everyone a lot of people um just talking about having to put their life on pause their dating life their their sex lives their romantic lives their intimate lives on on pause weren't they yeah absolutely i think i think there were quite a few breaks in the participants we interviewed that relations were ended rather abruptly or actually were resumed rather abruptly because of really um immediate need to decide okay are we are we going to stay together and if we're going to stay together how are we going to do this or are we not going to stay together and i think that that the pause also made some very permanent um, decisions for people, whether they were good or bad. And I, and I think that the, the decisions that were made by some of the participants, perhaps at the start of the of the lockdown or the first lockdown, um, were, were still with them and they were still wondering if they were the right, if they were the right decisions. And I, and I think that to an extent we were able to, or the participants were able to take a pause and reflect on things. But for some participants, actually, they'd made a decision early on about moving in with a partner or about not moving in or, or trying to initiate um, a, a household bubble that that with more than one person. And, and, and actually what did and didn't work, I think, was, was really important. So I, I think that the this is a very typical sociology thing to do but people had different different experiences of 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 lockdown and breaking but i think what's important to note is the 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 speed i think or the temporality that that things seem to be and apologies if this is repeating myself but things seem to be slowed down quite intensely but also sped up quite quite significantly and that had quite a knock-on effect to relationships and and communication with others yeah, because yeah. at the beginning of the pandemic, the, I can't remember which government advisor was just on stage with Matt Hancock saying, OK, you have to pick your partner now and move in with them. That was basically their only health messaging around intimacy throughout the entire pandemic. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and we've just co-authored um, or we're co-authoring a paper that looks at the kind of mononormativity that was completely implicit with in the state response to how we were going to conduct our intimate lives. And um, just as I'm sure you and your, you know, your listeners know, there are multiple communities that practice um, non-monogamous kind of mm-hmm. relationalities and intimacies. And and it just, as, as Ingrid was, you know, speaking, it was, it's also, you know, it, it's also, you know, non-monogamy 
manifest itself in lots of ways and it can be in structured or non-structured relationships but also in terms of casual sex or sex clubs mm -hmm. or saunas and it, it brings me back to that Berlant definition of connections that we depend on for living and mm -hmm. I think that definition has two aspects which are important for us one is um, the multiplicity of the sorts of intimacies that make people's lives meaningful mm. but also depends on for living right so it mm. points out what's at stake and i think it's very easy to be dismissive of people's intimate lives that don't fit into permanent long-term um, monogamous relationships and for some people you know those sex clubs are the connections they depend on for living as much as possibly their husband is you know there are so many different kind of um, practices and formations but which they depend on and so you know a couple of the interviewees talked about who you know who cut down or completely didn't have sex mm. the, the term touch starved came up by two different people unprompted and one person um, who gave a really interesting story of being uh, having an entirely digitally mediated relationship that ended and began mm. it but he talked about being traumatically affected by not having physical contact with someone um, and so I so yeah, I mean, that, that was terrible advice to pick the person because I'm not even sure that it fits the people that claim they do that, to be honest with you. No. So, Also, we know where intimate partner violence happens. Uh, you know, that is the most common form of um, sexual violence. And we know that that's gone through the roof during the pandemic. So um, yeah. Uh, the other, so the other thing I guess that it's doing there is that the, the rules of the pandemic, but also the the kind of the subtle non-messaging around public health in the pandemic was to reinforce the charmed circle idea of these ways of doing intimacy okay are okay the Gail Rubin idea that these forms of intimacy are okay so monogamous in person private all that kind of stuff um, non-transactional and then everything else is kind of not okay and it's reinforced that and in a way I think that it's a, I think this is a useful thing for any um, straight listeners to kind of reflect on is is to think well think about how the messaging around the pandemic and and the and hasn't affected you, uh, and think about how post-pandemic we might you might start to think about how you are allowed to express your intimacy in public spaces without a second thought. You know, even something as simple as holding hands, flirting with someone, uh, being able to dance with other people—they are forms of intimacy that straight people do that they've been deprived that you, people have been deprived of. So I think it's um, as well as the possibilities to treat people going to sex clubs and saunas too. Um, so there, I think that's just something, a bit of advice for the listener. <laughs> <laughs> um, but can we talk about the, the kind of the, the lockdown relationships? Because that was really interesting part of it, that there were relationships that existed, existed entirely on Zoom and FaceTime and things. And, uh, and how, did, how did the men involved take to that? What was their response to it? Do you think that might be something they might want to even continue? Okay. Well, I, I, it's it's hard to say because there were so many different experiences. I, I think that some some men appreciated the 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 different ways of connecting with and the different intimacies that emerged. So, so one participant in particular talked about how he would normally meet up with a friend. I think he would go to the gym with him and. Um, in lockdown, he then met up with him online. And rather than meeting him what kind of once or twice a month, he would meet him every week. And it turned into a much longer session. And it turned into 
really kind of a, a blossoming, I guess, friendship that they they really began to connect and get to know each other in ways that they hadn't had the chance to because of the the physicality of the gym, that what you talk about, and and I think the shift to online and, and someone else talked about how he'd he'd maybe seen someone once a year, once once or twice a year, and that shifted into a he met up with this person online once a week, and and so I do think that these the 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 people you have very kind of limited contact with suddenly became very important to the some of the participants was was really striking and the participants themselves reflected on well this is not what i expected to happen i expected the same pe- the people i saw all the time to be just to be transferred over to that digital space but that's not what happened at all there was a real a real reorganizing of of, of those connections so I think that was really that's really significant in what 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 changes that that meant but also there was there were some participants who talked about um, the difficulties in in sustaining precarious relationships or or relationships they weren't sure about and there was one in particular who talked about making a decision to move in with a partner with whom he'd had a very rocky experience with and made the decision to move in with him and wasn't sure how he felt about that and wasn't sure if he was in the right position, but he was in that situation now and so was dealing with it and hadn't actually told any of his family that he was he'd got back together with this person and because right. of the digital nature of it you don't see each other you can you think you can hide quite a lot from your family or from mm-hmm. but whether or not you can or not is is also up for debate but so i think there were some there were some worrying kind of reflections by some participants about well actually i felt like i had to make this decision because of the severity because of the pandemic and i'm not sure how I feel about that and, and what that's going to mean. And for some, I felt quite concerned for, but others, you know, so I think, I think again, those, those possibilities of, of growing and shifting relationships was, was really quite striking. Yeah. And th- these decisions are often just made in scarce, in, in, in positions of scarcity as well, aren't they? It's, it's not as if people have an abundant number of options, um, like living by themselves or you know we already know that many gay and bisexual men have to move to big cities in order to date and find communities and big cities are expensive in the uk um so there's already scarcity at play there as well just to come back to this kind of broader um the broader intimacy of missing places and buildings that was something that that um the participants were, were clearly talking about as well weren't they yeah, I mean, very much so. And it goes back to what we were saying before about how the, I mean, not only the commercial scene, um, but also community spaces, um, which had provided important kind of support for people in different ways. Um, yeah, they, they talked a great deal about that. There's one um, quote that uh, talked about he missed the, the intimacy of a night out which again is a not conventional way of thinking about intimacy, but one that I think is recognizable to queer people who, who for, you know, who for nightlife and bars um, perhaps is, well, is, is very important for them in ways that it is for other communities too, but um, you know, in a particular way. And yeah, he, he talked he said how, how awful it must be for, 
people who have just gone to university and have not been able to experience that sort of, you know, fresh as life that he was able to experience and how, how vital that was for his sense of self and his sense of connection. And it didn't even necessarily have to involve, you know, sex or even romance. Mm. romance. It was about being, being a body on a dance floor and to see that other queer people existed and to experience that type of collective joy. And mm. those, um, which, you know, we, we all depend on um, in different ways. And, and that does take a particular inflection for for gay men. And again, there's inequality here because those spaces tend to be dominated by men and there have been lots of discussions around the problems with that. But in terms of our participants, they talked a great deal about missing. Well, I hope you've been enjoying this conversation. In the rest of the episode, we talked about how neoliberalism has affected queer spaces and cities, how sexual health charities and organisations first responded to the pandemic with abstinence messaging, where the discourse went down the avenue of blaming individual gay men for apparently reckless behaviour rather than blaming the structural public health failure, how actually men were developing their own sensible harm minimisation strategies, and how this project is an important counterbalance to the mediated view of gay and bi men as being reckless and selfish. If you'd like to hear this full conversation, please head over to the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships and sign up from just one pound a month and you can listen to extra bonus material like this but also you can be supporting the show uh, so please if you can afford uh, to pay from just a pound a month if you can afford more that would be even better then please head over to the patreon patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships okay until next time then bye